a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. On today's episode, Liz and I talk with a popular neuroscientist, Dr. Alex Korb. He shares insights and tips from his book, The Upward Spiral. Dr. Korb shares a bit about the brain and why a healthy person is needed for a healthy partnership. From sleep, diet, and exercise to kindness and gratitude, Dr. Korb gives practical guidance to help you create an upward spiral for yourself and your marriage. Dr. Alice Korb is a neuroscientist, coach, and best-selling author of The Upward Spiral. He's the founder of The Upward Spiral Method, where he helps smart, passionate professionals conquer unnecessary overthinking, stress, and self-doubt to unleash the brain's potential for passion, productivity, and purpose. Dr. Korb has a wealth of experience in yoga and mindfulness, physical fitness, and even stand-up comedy. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Stronger Marriage Connection. I'm Dr. Dave here at Utah State University, alongside my wonderful co-host, Dr. Liz Hell, our licensed clinical psychologist. We are dedicating this podcast to giving you the best research and resources, the tips and the tools to help you have the marriage of your dreams. Okay, Liz, I could not be more excited about our guest today, our listeners they're in for a special treat. He is a neuroscientist. He's a coach. He's a best-selling author of one of my all-time, I call it my, one of my Dave faves, books called The Upward Spiral, which we're going to talk about. Honestly, I give this book out. I've given this book out more than any other book that I give out. I, I order it by the dozens, actually, and then I'm ready and I give it out to students and anyone else. His focus That's is on... volumes. That's it does, volumes. Liz. This, yeah, this is... So well, hopefully I'm not, I'm not like, okay, you know, here's the expectation level. <laughs> Let's do this. His focus is on mental health and he's an expert when it comes to helping people conquer unnecessary overthinking, stress, and self-doubt to unleash the brain's potential for passion, productivity, and purpose. Dr. Alex Korb, welcome to Stronger Marriage Connection. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me, and I appreciate your enthusiasm. Oh, man. I'm super pumped for this one. Okay, can you start things off by telling us a little bit about the, the research behind the book and why you wrote The Upward Spiral and how it's different? What makes it unique? Yeah, well, I have always been fascinated by the brain and how it regulates our mood and motivation and, you know, just sense of being calm and peaceful. And I... Uh, was getting a PhD in neuroscience studying depression. And my, my goal was to try and uh, use something that we could measure about the brain to like diagnose people as having depression or try and figure out like what treatment would be best for whom. 
and I realized like there there isn't actually a way to diagnose someone with depression um, because there's nothing like the brain isn't broken in the way that I think many people think and uh, and yet it's an issue of stuff that's going on in the brain, how various brain circuits are communicating. But regardless of whether you have depression or anxiety or just sort of more common stresses and feeling overwhelmed, like we all have the same brain circuits. They're all connected in essentially the same ways. And there are dozens of simple little things you can do to change the activity and chemistry of key brain circuits and how these regions are communicating. So like I was, I wrote the upward spiral because I was trying to help people understand that, Hey, like there's nothing broken about the brain and depression, but this is just how the brain works. And these are the reasons why it gets stuck. But to be honest, my initial thinking was like, yeah, this applies to everyone because there's nothing like broken about the brain depression. There's no like bright line you can draw, like the same techniques and tactics you can use to change the brain circuits and rewire the brain work for anyone uh, to be happier and more productive and more focused and more fulfilled and all of that wonderful stuff. And I, I will say, though, when I was first writing the book, uh, one of the editors was like, why are you spending so much time like explaining what's going on in the brain, how the brain works? Like, just tell people what they can do. Uh, and it took me a while to, like, think about my response. And I was like, well, for one, because it just seemed obvious, like, well, I'm a neuroscientist, I'm Think about the brain. Uh, but then I realized, like, there's a million books out there that'll be like, hey, do this, do that, do this. Like, and I'm not, like, coming up with necessarily these dramatically new things. Like, oh, you should exercise. Oh, you should connect with people. Like, oh, you should get some sunlight. Uh, I'm just helping to explain how these things are related to neuroscience and how they affect the levels of various neurotransmitter systems or the communication between different brain regions. And the irony is you don't need to know any of that. Like you could just do, you could just follow a list of instructions. Hey, go exercise. Oh, improve your sleep. The challenge though, that I've realized, like if you're a smart successful person you're not used to just like okay i'll just follow this list of instructions like you know what you're supposed to do like you've been hearing all you're like oh you're supposed to exercise oh you're supposed to feel grateful oh you're supposed to whatever but until you actually understand like why you're stuck in the first place and like why these things work then they're always going to feel like they're imposed from the outside as opposed to a choice that you can make. And once people understand their own brains, they understand themselves better and they can be like, oh, maybe I want 
to exercise. Maybe I want to practice gratitude or try some of these techniques. And when it comes from your own motivation, it has a totally different effect. So I basically I wrote it because I was curious. I'm like, I didn't want to do any of these things that are, that I suppose, you know, are quote unquote good for me until I understood why I was doing them. And then I just sort of, you know, Oh, well, I found this really helpful. Maybe other people would as well. So the why is really the magic bullet, Alex. I'm we're excited to dive into that. Yeah. We're, here on the Stronger Marriage Connection, our focus is primarily on the couple relationship. But I think we all agree, I know Dave and I certainly do, that a healthy we starts with a healthy me. Is that how you see it too? Yeah. Um, I mean, I often think about this uh, um this example of like when you're when you're flying in an airplane and they say, oh, if there's, you know, if the oxygen masks fall down, make sure to put on your oxygen mask first before stopping to help others. And it's it's helpful to point out, like, you're not doing that because you're some greedy jerk who's trying to hog all the oxygen. No, like you are doing it to help other people so that you can be of service. And if you can't take care of your own needs, then you are unable to help others. And so one of the crucial things is, and this is what I, I often help people with in my coaching, is to understand what your limitations are. Uh, and so it's wonderful to want to help others and connect with other people. But like, if you're going past what you're actually capable of, then you're often working against your own interests. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. In your, in your book, again, which I just <clears throat> I love so much, you talk about how our brains are wired to notice the negative, right? And this probably holds true in, in marriage as well. Noticing the negative things your partner says or does, um, you know, what's happening in the brain and, and, and how can people um, really get out of this negative habit and pattern with what's going on in the brain? Yeah. Well, for one, it's different between different people. And that's one of the things that I, I like to help people understand that different brains are different. And so a large part of this is just understanding how your specific brains work because some people, Oh, they're just, they're just, you know, they just notice the positive all the time. And that's awesome. And some people just notice the negative all the time. And part of the problem is like, Oh, those people might marry each other. <laughs> And you just need to realize like, oh, that doesn't mean there's something wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with them. Like our brains are just different and that's okay. And sometimes recognizing, oh, we're seeing something from different perspective just because our brains are wired differently. Then you can anticipate, oh, that there's going to be some you know, disagreement or difficulty and not like read into it so much of or pile so much on like, Oh my God, she doesn't understand me. And I'm like, Oh, we just have different experiences. Our brains are wired in, you know, we have different genes. Our brains are wired slightly differently as a result. Nope. We have different perspectives and that's perfectly okay. Um, the other challenge. And, and so a large part of that comes down to acceptance of just acknowledging who you are as a person acknowledging who they are as a person. And okay, there you go. That's like, that's all you need to do. Uh, another piece though, 
is that our brains are really good at adjusting to whatever our life is like and things that um, are very predictable we just don't even pay attention to anymore so um so things like running water like really important part of your life probably not something you think about <laughs> at all or like i have a my brother-in-law he does a lot of wastewater management stuff and he's like yeah you probably you probably maybe if you notice your your water bill and you have to like pay your sewage fee you're like oh that's kind of annoying but you know kind of a real helpful thing in modern society to have that taken care of but uh the problem is that these these things that are kind of ever present in our lives even if they're really good they're just always there and so our brain can kind of tune them out and then uh and then we only it only alerts us it only sets an alarm or causes us to pay attention to when things deviate from that and part of the issue is like oh when something is always good or almost always good well then you're never going to notice it at all except in the few instances where oh the trash didn't get picked up oh the toilet backed up again or whatever and it's just uh um it's just a function of how the brain works. And so one of the workarounds of that is to practice gratitude, which is very different than um, most people think that means. They think it means they should practice feeling grateful, but you don't actually have control over your feelings at the moment. So a lot of times people are like, oh yeah, I should, I should be more grateful for my running water and my electricity. And then they're like, but I don't feel grateful. Oh, I'm such an ungrateful jerk. And they just use the fact that they don't feel a certain way as a mean, as a reason to criticize themselves. And that just makes them feel worse. It puts them into a downward spiral. Instead, uh, when I say practice gratitude, I just mean directing your attention to the things in your life that you could acknowledge are good that you could say, yeah, I'm glad I have running water. Like if I, Hey, if I asked you, are you guys glad you have running water? Are you glad you have electricity? Absolutely. Probably, yes. Right. Yes. It's just so grateful. You don't think about it most of the time. And Until so the someone, power goes out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they, but the, uh, if someone else asked you, hey, are you glad that's there? You go, yeah. And so, so someone else could direct your attention to it. But the point is, you don't have to wait until someone else directs your attention to the good things. Like, you could do that on your own. And it starts to change the dopamine circuits in the brain. It helps us feel more connected to other people, which is, you know, real key part of this the marriage connection. Um, and, uh, and this is just something you can do on your own, but it has effects on your brain chemistry and it helps you feel more connected to people in your life. Beautiful. You devote a couple of chapters, Alex, right up front in your book, the upward spiral, discussing depression and anxiety. Those are probably two of the most common struggles we deal with as individuals. But this spills over and affects our relationships in a very real way. 
Can you explain what's going on in the brain and a few tips for our listeners who might be struggling in these areas? Yeah. So uh, one of the challenges is to realize that like anxiety and depression distort your perception and they distort your thinking. And when the brain is, say, depressed, it tends to think and act in ways that keep it depressed. And it it looks it changes the way the brain filters information from the world. So you're more likely to notice stuff that confirms the mood that you're already in. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important for people to understand the neuroscience, because you can't escape your own perspective. All you can do is acknowledge that you have a perspective. And so like knowing that depression has this effect on the brain, just going to pay more attention to your pain or suffering, even physical pain and, you know, mistakes and things that could go wrong or things that went wrong in the past. Like your brain is just turning your attention towards those things. And if you can just realize like, Oh, it feels like everything is terrible. But I, but I know that that's, that's being colored by the depression. So like, it doesn't suddenly, you know, knowing that doesn't suddenly make me feel totally better. At least though, it can prevent me from going into a further downward spiral and be like, what's wrong with me? Why does everything feel this way? I can, I can remember like, oh, well, things probably aren't as bad as they seem. I'm, my brain is exaggerating and emphasizing these things. And that doesn't mean my experience is wrong. My experience of these things is, is exactly right and valid. It's just, okay, well, I, you know, can, can start to turn my attention, uh, more intentionally towards things that are more helpful for me to do or for more help, more helpful for me to focus on like physical activity, for example, depression, you know, gets sucks away your energy and it makes you, you know, see the point of exercising and you can say, okay, yeah, that's true. I don't really feel like exercising and I don't really see much point of it, but I know it's going to have these important effects on these key brain circuits. So I'm just going to, you know, go for a walk instead of sitting Mm -hmm. on the couch. We call it some pretty good self-care, right, Alex? Yeah. And depression and anxiety seems like it's pretty normal. True? Yeah. No, there's, uh, they're very normal um, as disorders in that they're extremely common. Uh, and uh, they're even more normal than that because, like, the brain doesn't make this clear distinction between, oh, you have normal anxiety and you have clinical anxiety. Uh, Those are distinctions that um, scientists need to to make in order to study things precisely or the the distinctions physicians need to make in order to um, 
bill well sometimes to treat but also sometimes it's just uh, i gotta bill the insurance company or whatever like and some of these are like arbitrary distinctions that we've put on a um a biology that isn't you know binary one way or the other uh similarly um like a, a large there, large part of percentage of people with anxiety also suffer from mood issues and vice versa and even if you don't have any clinical problems or diagnosable levels of these disorders that doesn't mean you can just be like oh great i don't qualify for clinical depression or anxiety my life is fantastic like no uh and that's that's actually why i i shifted more to focusing on these bigger issues of stress and self-doubt and overthinking and, you know, procrastination for some people, you know, these are big challenging problems. It just, the way their brains are wired, they're not so um, held back by them that they would meet the criteria for depression or anxiety. Um, but for people who are stuck in depression or anxiety, like it's also important to realize there's nothing broken or wrong with your brain it's just oh you can change start to change some of these brain circuits that boost your mood or that help you be more productive or help you feel more connected to people we'll be right back after this brief message i'm dave Colley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast cold in october of 1985 a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. And we're back. Well, let's dive right in. I, I love that you, and this kind of talks, gets to what you're, you're talking about. Um, you also focus in, in the book on getting caught in bad habits. And I often call these relationship ruts when it comes to, to marriage. Why do we get stuck in, in bad habits? It, it feels like so easily. <laughs> yeah. Well, because, the, because of how the habit circuit in the brain works. It's called the dorsal striatum. And it's one of the most ancient parts of the brain. And it's one of the earliest ways that the, the brain evolved to keep us alive. And it basically works on the principle of, well, I'm alive now. So I guess I should just keep doing whatever I have been doing. And, you know, that's how the dinosaurs survived. That's, uh, that's how most, uh, animals, it gets you, you know, 
it, like the world is complex and you, how do you make all these complex decisions? Well, just you start with this real simple little algorithm and it helps you get uh, really far. Uh, and so we get stuck in bad habits because this is a deep part of our brain and these other emotional circuits and circuits that are involved in like long-term planning and decision-making, those evolved much later. So they don't always like work as quickly, <laughs> but that the habit circuit works really quickly and automatically. And the other key issue is that it doesn't make a distinction between good habits and bad habits. It just wants you to do whatever you've done the most before. And that unfortunately sometimes comes in conflict with our higher order brain regions that are like, oh, but I really want to, you know, do this or want to accomplish this goal. And the habit circuit is just like plodding along like, well, this is what we did yesterday. Um, and when those things come in conflict, ironically, it stresses you out. And when you are stressed out, it activates the habit circuit in your brain to push you back into what is familiar and routine. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Like that path of least resistance. It's just like, ah, it's right. more familiar. I'm just going to do this. But exactly. So in relationships, we, we get into familiar patterns. And when we're in doing familiar patterns, those patterns could be familiar from the chaos of our childhood, or they could just be familiar from, you know, the way we've been interacting with each other for the last few years. And when things become familiar, oh, we, it reduces our stress response and we can just sort of um, rely on our habits. And when things start to change, even if they're changing for the good, like, oh, suddenly my wife wants to, you know, she wants to start working out more because she has more energy. Oh, well, now that's different. Now I have to think about, you know, how I'm going to interact and do I need to change? Do I would like, and that creates stress, which pushes us back into our old habits. And uh, because we want things, uh, that part of the brain wants everything to stay the same and be familiar, but that might be put, pushing against our sort of deeper desires for happiness and fulfillment. But it's just that different parts of the brain want different things. And ideally, you need to figure out, okay, how can I rewire my brain and re- you know, configure my uh, communication in my marriage so that I can get all of those things and they're not always in conflict. Mm -hmm. oh. Well, we have a great deal of respect for your writings, for your book, Alex, and you discuss all kinds of scientifically backed ways to create what you call this upward spiral. Well, I think we're all very familiar with the downward spiral. Yeah. <laughs> but this upward spiral, of course, always starts with sleep and exercise and how those affect our body and our brain. Just earlier, I was telling um, Dave that I woke up in a just rotten mood and I had not been on the treadmill for several days. Finally had to get on there with some great music and I'm back, you know, so mm -hmm. I can really attest to that. It's very true. You know, the best way to deal with emotion is motion. Yeah. Tell us more what you think about sleep, exercise. Yeah, these are all sort of the foundational principles of what our brain needs to be healthy and happy. And a lot of times when, um, when I'm trying to understand like, well, why is the brain this way? I find it really helpful to just think back to like, 
50,000 years ago when we were living as hunter gatherers in, in the situation where the brain evolved because the brain evolved over millions of years, but our society has changed much more rapidly. So we still have the same brains that we did 50,000 years ago, but now we have computers and we have all these other things that sometimes make it more difficult to just automatically do the things that our brain needs to be healthy and happy. So our, our brain evolved to be in a body that moves. Uh, and you don't need to be sprinting all the time, but just it didn't evolve to sit at a computer for eight hours straight every day. And so like one of the, um, the best ways you can use this information, by the way, is to realize like, oh, that doesn't mean you need to start running five miles every day. You just need to avoid long periods of inactivity. So you can just set a reminder to once every hour, once every half hour, just like stand up for five seconds and then you can sit right back down. And like that gets you 50% of the way there of what physical activity can do. And it's so convenient. It's so simple. And one of the reasons why people don't take advantage of physical activity enough is of how they're thinking about it. They're like, ah, oh, I have to go on a five mile run. I have to exercise for three hours a week. I can't do that. Oh, I'm just going to sit on the couch. So, and then you like, because your body isn't moving, then you don't sleep as well. And then you get more pain and you create this downward spiral. Then you're more irritable and then you irritate your spouse. And then you get an argument, like it creates this whole downward spiral. And really all you can do is just like, well, just start, making any little tiny change that's better than the default. It doesn't need to be some big, huge plan. So just start moving your body every once in a while. Go for a walk. Get outside and get some sunlight. The sunlight will help change your brain's clock so that it's easier to fall asleep. And the sleep that you get is more restful and restorative. So sometimes people are like, I don't have enough energy to exercise for three hours a week. I don't have enough time to get eight hours of sleep. Well, the more the fo you focus on the things that you don't have that you can't do, it increases your stress in your brain, which pushes you back into old habits. Instead, think about like, what are the little small tweaks that I can do that will create an upward spiral? So I don't have enough energy to go for a run. Well, I can Go for a walk or I don't have enough, you know, time to get eight hours of sleep. Okay. Well, if I just get some sunlight and actually get some exercise and also try going to sleep at the same time every night, I don't need more time to get to sleep because my brain will actually make better use of the uh, time I spend sleeping. I'll get the more rest out of that same time. And that also then makes it easier to feel less stressed. It'll give me more energy. So it'll be able to exercise. It'll be easier to focus on the positive and so on. And, uh, and so that's why the opportunity is always there to create an upward spiral by just making one small change. Hmm. Yeah. 
I love that whole idea, that, that concept of that small little change, which leads to another one, you know, just the different neuro <laughs> changes that are happening in, inside of our brain. And the other benefit of why the small change is helpful is because big changes stress us out. And so we think about these big, huge change and then we're like, I don't know if I can do that. And so we don't do anything. <laughs> so a small change, okay, just stresses you out maybe a little bit, but at least it's enough that you can, okay, let me just take a deep breath and I'm going to keep going. Yeah, yeah. Well said. And then we celebrate that small win and, you know, and then it creates yeah, more, more momentum for the, for the next challenge. You talked about gratitude earlier and, and for us um, and the research on this, you know, kindness and gratitude, those are like some of the keys for a stronger marriage connection. What, what's your take on, um, you know, the, the gratitude and the kindness as far as, you know, individually what it does for us as well as the relationship? Yeah. Well, so one of the great things about gratitude is that it's something you can do on your own that will help you feel more connected to your partner. So um, you can practice a gratitude journal. Just write down three to five things that happened that day or things that you appreciate about your life. And you'll also, um, that practice, by the way, improves your sleep quality. <laughs> so you don't need more time to sleep. It just makes it more restful. And it reduces your stress. And it starts to rewire your brain so that it makes it easier to focus on the positive. And this can be something you can do totally independent of your spouse. Like just start thinking about good things in your life. Oh, and then your brain will start noticing more good things about them and you'll feel more connected to them. Uh, there's also great research on writing thank you letters uh, where you can uh just take a few moments to express your gratitude to someone else. But the, and this starts to um, rewire the attention circuits in the brain. There's studies that have shown it lasts for even a few months. Uh, and uh, because by expressing your appreciation, you start to make it easier and more automatic to pay attention to these things because essentially you have positive thoughts or emotions that pop into your head but most of the time we don't do anything with them and so your brain's like oh i can just ignore those but if you take the time to like write it down and express it then you're you send the signal to yourself like oh i should oh i should pay attention to those things <laughs> more uh but again what's cool about this research is that this is something you can do entirely on your own that you can write a thank you letter telling someone how much you appreciate them and all the great things that they did for you and how it impacted your life, but you don't actually have to send it to them. And yet it still has measurable effects on your brain. And now if you have these positive thoughts about someone, well, it's good to communicate it to that person. Uh, but sometimes we're like, Oh, but you know, they did this nice thing a year ago and I didn't thank them. And I can't say them now because then they'll get angry at me. And so we don't even allow ourselves to think about or express our appreciation because we're worried about how the other person's going to react. But you can use that gratitude to help improve yourself. And then, oh, also realizing that when someone else gets praised, it activates their reward circuitry. And I like to think of that as like 
uh, and the same reward circuitry that's activated by winning money. So I like to think of that as like, you have this power to just write someone a check from your checking account and they can cash it. But guess what? Your checking account doesn't go down at all. <laughs> and so like, that's what the power of kindness and praising and expressing appreciation to someone else, like, oh, they feel this benefit, but it doesn't cost you anything. And one of the most powerful ways to practice this, by the way, is to just shut your mouth <laughs> when something, uh, when the other person does something wrong or bad, because they already most likely know that they made a mistake or that they messed up and they're already criticizing their self and they're already anticipating oh, what you're going to say because you say that every time I leave the dishes out or whatever, like whatever. And by breaking that pattern from the expected criticism that again activates these same reward circuits as getting praise that when we make a mistake and someone doesn't criticize us, we're like, Oh, wow. That was nice. Like we experience that as a kindness and that's hard to do because sometimes we try and criticize someone because we're trying to help them. Like, but, uh, you know, you experience it like, Oh, I'm just trying to help you. But they experience it like, Oh, here he goes again. Like, and that's why it's helpful to remember that different people have different perspectives of the same situation. Mm -hmm. what, I, what I consider to be helpful, my husband considers to be controlling. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Because to have someone tell you to do this thing means it's externally imposed. And that not being in control affects your stress response. Whereas if someone helped you understand the reasons why you would want to do this on your own and you can make the choice to do it. Oh, well then it has a very different effect. I mean, that's why I like to explain the neuroscience so that people can make the choices for themselves as opposed to some doctor be like, you have to do these things or you're going to, you know, it's your fault or you're going to, you know, cause more problems. Uh, and unfortunately when it comes to relationships, we, we forget that we have the power to encourage and inspire our spouses because we're stuck. We're trying to control them, but then they feel controlled. And then we feel out of control. And like, uh, it, it really comes down to the, the, the fundamental challenges that we, we need each other to connect with other people to like survive and thrive. And yet we also feel stressed when we are out of control but we don't have the ability to control other people and yet we need other people. And so it's like this, all this, this delicate balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sure is. You say it beautifully. I love that we need the why that makes all the difference. I can see why that would be Alex. Why the why I get it. I really do. And you know, I would never turn down, like you say, it's never too late. I would never turn down a check that maybe someone felt they owed me from a couple of years ago. Right. I would say, wow, this is what a, what a windfall. How delightful is this? People would probably feel the same way about a belated thank you, I imagine. And that's and the research actually shows that if you tell someone um, how much their you know gift or action helped you, and it was you know 
five months later or five years later that actually carries more weight behind it. Cause they're like, Oh wow, I just did this little thing. This person is still thinking about it. Whereas like, if you say thank you right away, sometimes, Oh, we can dismiss that. Oh, they're just being polite or whatever. But if someone contacted you like, Hey, like I have a friend, I went to my 20 year college reunion. I remember this book she gave me when we were in college and I was like, Hey, like, I just, I think about that all the time. Like, I still have it now. I read it to my kids sometimes. Like, she's like, oh, wow. Like, that's, thank you. Uh, because we want to feel like we have a positive impact on people that is lasting. And you have the power to share that with others, the power that they, they influence you. It's just that we're often focused on the negative we're focused on our own guilt. Oh, I should have said thank you before or like, and it becomes self-reinforcing because we're like, Oh, I didn't say it already. And now I feel guilty about not saying it. And then we use that guilt as a reason to continue to not say it. And then we feel more guilty. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's why, but again, the brain is just very easy to get stuck in those patterns. And all you can do is, Oh, Acknowledge that you're stuck and be kind to yourself and then say, okay, well, here I am. What do I want to do next? Yeah. Ah, beautiful. And be kind to others when they get stuck. Yeah. Just well said. What about the placement of therapy and medication, Alex? When should someone reach out to professional when they're struggling with depression or anxiety? Yeah. Well, uh, anytime it feels like it's, persistent that you can't break out of it. Like we, we all experience, you know, downward spirals to some time and it lasts, you know, a day or a few days or something. But when it feels like, I can't break out of this on my own, then you don't need to break out of it on your own. Try, you know, ask for some help and like, we have this intuition, I, I think, already about um, other things, <laughs> like when it comes to your car, like, oh, my my car isn't working. Oh, well, should I should I fill, put gas in it? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Oh, I can do that on my own. OK, great. Do it. Uh, oh, like, oh, do I just need uh, some jumper cables or whatever? Like there are certain things you can just do on your own. And if you've feel if you know what those are and you can do them on your own and oh that seems to fix the problem then great you don't need anyone else but there are certain things where you know even if you know the answer you might not have the ability to do it on your own uh, or other times where you have no idea what the answer is at all so just ask an expert or professional for help and it's much easier to do when it comes to things like your car or something else that's not you because we have less of these, like the sense of all these different, you know, assumptions wrapped up in it. Like, Oh, well, if I ask for help, that means I'm weak and I'm broken or whatever. Like, and those are just unhelpful thoughts that are often fed by the depression that just keep you stuck in the same place. So essentially it's okay. If you know what to do and you, can do it and are doing it, then great. You probably don't need help. Uh, but uh, if you're um, maybe have no idea what to do, or you feel like 
you know what to do, but you just can't get yourself to do it. Or even you feel like you're doing everything and you're still stuck and you have no idea why. Well, you don't need to do it on your own. And asking someone for help, whether it's a friend or a mental health professional, either a therapist or a psychiatrist or even a, a coach or a counselor, like that any step of asking someone else for help is better than just sitting there in the same pattern stuck over and over and over again. Uh, and you're the thing that keeps us from reaching out a lot of times is we have a thought that's like, oh, but what are they, what are they going to do? <laughs> okay. Right. And that thought just keeps perpetuating the actions and the beliefs that you're already taking which is activating your habits, which are just keeping you in the same pattern over and over again. And so you can acknowledge, oh, I am really skeptical that someone else is going to be able to help. Okay, well, that skepticism is just keeping me stuck in the same pattern. So the one thing I know for certain, if I just keep staying stuck in the same pattern, I'm going to stay stuck. So I don't need to know how exactly someone, some mental health professional is going to help I just need to know that what I'm doing right now isn't working. <laughs> and then it frees you up uh, to to um, allow other people to try and help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wise words. Well, um, Alex, we like to ask each of our guests uh, this particular question. So what do you believe is the key to a stronger marriage connection? Um the just acknowledging that you have uh your own perspective and that they have their own perspective and that like your brain is shaped by your genetics by your experiences by the mood that you're in right now and their brain is different and uh once you can acknowledge that you have a perspective and just admit the possibility that your perspective is not always the <laughs> correct perspective and arbiter of everything. If you just admit the possibility that maybe you're not 100% right about everything that is relevant, then it opens up the possibility to be curious about someone else's perspective. And, and I think that's the, the real challenge. We get caught in our own perspective and we get caught in the perspective of like, but I'm right. It's okay. You might be right about most things or a lot of things, but as long as you admit the possibility that you have a perspective and that it's maybe not, you don't have access to all information or not 100% correct about everything, then it creates the opportunity for communication and connection and finding a way forward. Mm, yeah, I love it. Thank you. Dr. Corb, where can listeners go for more information about you and your book and resources, please? Yeah. Um, social media uh, is a great place. I'm trying to share a lot more there. Alex Corb, PhD on um, Instagram or Facebook. Uh, AlexCorbPhD.com is also a place where you can sign up for my mailing list. Uh, on my Instagram bio i have a lot of useful resources like i have a six-step guide to um stopping overthinking so you can get stuff done i lead webinars people can sign up 
there I have other useful resources. Um, so, uh, and you know, if people want to read more about, they can read the whole book in the upward spiral, uh, download that or buy that, um, on Amazon or any other bookstore you like. Um, but yeah, I'm always looking to help people. So I'm trying to bring them into my world so you can understand the neuroscience, understand yourself better and how you can start to change your brain. Very generous of you. Yeah. Thank you. And we'll put those links in our, in our show notes for our listeners as well, so they can find all that information. Hey, as we wrap up our, our time together, uh, I'd love for us to, to share our, our takeaway of the day. What do you hope, Alex, that our listeners will remember from our discussion today? Um, yeah, just that when things feel really bad, whether it's just on a, your own personal level or between you and your spouse. And we always have these thoughts like, like catastrophic thoughts. Like, Oh my God, I married, married the wrong person or like, Oh, we've damaged things fundamentally or whatever to just realize that, um, when you are feeling stressed or overwhelmed, things aren't as bad as they seem (laughs) because your, your perception is being skewed. And so you just, from there, you can validate your experiences. Oh, it feels really bad. And yet, it's probably not as bad as it feels. And all I need to do is take one small step. And that small step doesn't have to fix everything. It just needs to be better than the default of the downward spiral that your brain wants to go in. And it can be any of these things we've talked about. Oh, you can just go for a walk. Oh, you could try practicing gratitude. Oh, you could... Um, get some sunlight. And sometimes people experience that as like, oh my God, you're telling me I have to do all these different things and we're juggling them. It's like, no, no, no. You don't have to do all of these different things. You just need to make one tiny little change that's different than the default. And that tiny little change in any of these areas will start to change the activity and chemistry of your brain in ways that can change your perception of the world and make you feel more connected or make you feel more capable and less stressed. And from there, okay, then you can make another change, but you don't need to, like when everything seems like it's falling apart, you don't need to try and figure out how you're going to solve it all at once. You just need to make that one little change to create an upward spiral. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I love that. Liz, what about you? What's your takeaway of the day. Just, just why the why is so important, right? It's uh, we don't want to be told what to do. None of us do. But when you can tell me why something is good for me or why it would benefit my life and my relationships, you've got my attention, right? I'm much more likely to do small and simple things. What about you, Dave? What's your takeaway from our time with Alex Korb today? Yeah. Yeah. So many little, um, little tips. I love the idea of the small, the small little change, I'm going to, you know, bring that over into the relationship. When we just do small little things, and we give our our spouse or partner different a different person to respond to, and you you talked about how we perceive things differently. I think that's true in relationships as well. The little small random act of of kindness, or hey, let's go for a drive tonight and go get an ice cream, or kind of breaking up those relationship ruts or those routines, these habits that we get ourselves into. Sometimes it just takes a, a little. A little change, a little tweak, uh, a little small win that then can create a, uh, a relationship 
um, upward spiral as well. So Dr. Alex Korb, we sure appreciate you, your time, your, your insights, the resources that you have, have, uh, created and developed for so many people. Uh, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And wonderful to share this with your audience. You're making the world better. Yeah, uh, you sure are. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all my friends. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the stronger marriage connection. We'll see you next time. And remember, it's the small and simple things that create a stronger marriage connection. Bye-bye for now. We'll see you later. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, do us a favor and take a few minutes to subscribe to our podcast and the Utah Marriage Commission YouTube channel, where you can watch this and every episode of the show. When you hit the like button and leave a comment, your feedback helps us improve the show. And don't forget to share this episode with a friend. You can also follow and connect with us on Instagram at Stronger Marriage Life and on Facebook at Stronger Marriage. Be sure to share with us what topics you want us to explore or what you loved about today's episode. If you want even more resources to improve your relationship connection, visit our website at strongermarriage.org where you'll find free workshops, webinars, relationship surveys, and more. Each episode of Stronger Marriage Connection is hosted and sponsored by the Utah Marriage Commission at Utah State University. And finally, a big thanks to our producers Rex Polanis and Alexis Alcott and the team at Utah State University. And you, our audience, you make this show possible. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.